I'm Amanda DeSantos from Summa Health. Uh, I'm a third year resident going into ultrasound fellowship at UC Irvine. And I'm Dr. Stephen Haywood. I am the outgoing chair of the SAEM Virtual Presence Committee. And this is the SAEM 23 Annual Meeting Podcast. Amanda, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us today. Phenomenal sessions, great keynote, great plenary. Um, just great talks all around today. Amazing. It's been an amazing day, Steve. I am so glad to be here. I just got to the conference today and excited to learn a lot and connect with a lot of people. Especially excited to see you. Ohio misses yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, the plenaries, again, were great. And the first plenary is something that's near and dear to your heart going into an ultrasound fellowship, looking at ultrasound-guided nerve blocks for back pain. Quick editor comment, just want to make sure we give credit to the authors. This was entitled Erector Spinae Plane Block for Low Back Pain Reduces Pain and May Reduce Opioid Consumption. And this was presented by Andrew Wayment, who is the presenting author. Absolutely. Well, we all know that back pain is a very common uh, reason why people come to the emergency department. A lot of times acute on chronic back pain, it's non-traumatic, no red flags, no concerns, but the patients are uncomfortable. A lot of what we can offer, it's not very effective, right? We sure. can give them high dose opioids, cause a lot of other downsides and downfall of cascades of events, but a nerve block, it's effective. And this is wonderful to see this data evidence-based gui evidence guided here with residents and attending physicians doing this block and giving patients a lot of comfort. Absolutely. Nerve blocks are so fast and I've gotten so much more gratitude from patients with nerve blocks versus opiates. Uh, and so it's great to have some data supporting us. And, and what did their data show? It shows that it works, it not just works, but it works so much better for much longer than opioids. Even though a good percentage of patients were already on opioids before, even those patients have decreased opioid use down the road. Over, If you look at, they have a beautiful graph on their presentation, after like a couple of hours, the ultrasound guided nerve block provided a lot more pain relief than the opioid medications. And that was lasting for a few days. At 48 hours, the majority of patients still had a lot of relief of pain. And even down a week, by then the effects start to wean down. However, it's still very effective for multiple days. Absolutely. And you know, Northeast Ohio, I worked there for a long time, that's where you're at right now. It's you know, ground zero for the opiate epidemic. And we've seen the horrors of people that get dependent on these opiates and what they end up turning to. Uh, and so I love that they use this as one of their outcomes of a way that we can get not even the same pain control, better pain control without using any opiates. Absolutely, or at least decreased opioids, right? Because they might go home, they are on opioids for chronic reasons, but at least decreasing their use will decrease even the side effects of constipation and whatnot. Of course, the addiction, the deaths that we're going uh, through are devastating, but there are other less serious side effects that are detrimental to our patients. So it clearly showed you got really good pain control, it clearly showed less opiates. Uh, what are some limitations here? Well, I think one of them that they mentioned is the bupivacaine shortage. I, I was not aware that that was a thing, but um, nursing sh shortage, because you might need uh, nursing and more people that are in the room with you. I imagine that room and space availability is another thing, right? Because the patient mm -hmm. might have to be in a specific position for a specific amount of time. A lot of times you want to monitor these patients while you're giving them an anesthetic. There's also like patients with larger body habitus. That might make it a little more difficult for them, but they develop a new technique called WHOOP. The WHOOP. 
first of all, whoop is really fun to say. Uh, and it's, they call it the way out of plane technique. Uh, and they had some really good videos showing that on these patients that are, you know, with significant adipose tissue, you just can't keep the needle in plane. You can't visualize the needle in plane. Um, it's really a great technique. Uh, I have no conflicts of interest whatsoever. Uh, however, they a lot of their videos are up on core ultrasound to show how they did this, their approach to the block. The evidence is there. I'd say that anybody that's seeing low back pain, which is all EM physicians, uh, check out this paper and check out the core ultrasound site and, and see what they're doing. That is definitely something I have not done. And now I'm curious. I'll definitely watch those videos tonight. Um, there's also the fact that you can't be blinded. Can they see? Yeah. Yeah. You, you know if you got a needle shoved in your back or not. So. Um, yes, you do. I'm sure there's some ways around it. But in the end of the day, this is a very effective way of treating our patient's pain. So I'm for it. I hope we all try it. I'm going to try it. I'm going to start doing it. Again, we want to give credit to all our presenting authors. The next paper was entitled Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act Citations for Failure to Accept Appropriate Transfers 2011 to 2022. And the presenting author was Jasmine Randawa. Uh, Steve, plenary number two was talking about MTALA violations for refusing transfers. Yes. I know you practice emergency medicine in a rural setting. I am sure that this is something that is near and dear to your heart yes. have you been struggling with this in your practice yes yes and i've uh i've learned imtala is so good because i've learned you have to spell it out for someone and let them know they're <gasps> committing an imtala violation wow uh, to advocate for your patients mm -hmm. uh, this paper it was pretty impressive uh, they looked at imtala violations you know they were able to get this data from the freedom of information act they did a freedom of information act request and got imtala all the imtala violations and then specifically drilled down on the violations for not for transferring facilities for accepting facilities we think of imtala as em physicians as well i have a obligation to provide a medical screening exam and emergent medical stabilization to every patient that enters my door but there's more to it than that mm -hmm. it includes transfers and it includes all er's that accept cms funding are required if they have the capacity and the capability to treat a patient, they are required to accept that patient. And when they don't, they get a violation, they get a ding. Um, and this paper was cool because they drilled down at those violations, uh, looked at where they were happening, tried to, tried to examine why they were happening um, from that data. And over 11 years, there was about 26, 2700 citations. And about 8% of these violations were failure to accept transfer. Um, there was 19 different hospitals that were cited. There was 207 events uh, that occurred. Half of these were surgical. And we get frustrated with our colleagues, but when you look at it, I know uh, you and I both had a lot of training on Imtala, and we've been taught about Imtala because it's something we deal with every day. Mm -hmm. Surgeons, other disciplines may not be trained on Imtala mm -hmm. or not trained on Imtala like we are, uh, which I think accounts for some of it. There was a big portion of psych as well. We all know the state of you know psychiatry in our country in some areas mm -hmm. specifically and the struggle of getting psych patients transferred very difficult the thing that really kind of chapped my rear end was when you looked at the data for why they refused first of all on a lot of these they had no data they mm -hmm. didn't know that why they refused but when they had data the most common reason for refusal of this patient was insurance was insurance so these Imtala violations are boiling down in many cases to money. Mm -hmm. They're not accepting the transfer. 
because they're not going to get paid for it. And that's very frustrating. When very I'm much out, so. When I'm out in the trenches, rural health, seeing this already underserved population, trying to get them to a higher level of care and getting rejected because they don't have insurance, because of money. Um, it's, you know, it's something everyone in the American health care system struggles with, um, but it's, it hurts to see it in print. And it's really sad when you're calling and trying to do a transfer and I've been moonlighting a little bit and I know the struggle of having to transfer someone and they're like, well, what kind of insurance they have? And you're like, I haven't even looked at that, right? Like, it's, mm -hmm. it, it leaves a bitter taste in your mouth that this is taken into consideration. I'm actually surprised with 2,700, um, uh, 2,600 citations here in 11 years. You've had a few episodes. I've had a few episodes on my field shifts mm -hmm. at the rural hospital. This sounds underreported to me. Do you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm guilty myself. Uh, I've had some, you know, when I've got two or three equidistant hospitals away and I'm busy and one hospital rejects me when I know they have the capacity and mm -hmm. they have the capability and I just go to the next one and they accept and I, and I don't follow through with it. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm gonna start reporting more. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if, if we don't speak up, nothing's gonna change and we really, I need to do a better job of advocating for my patients. As Gandhi says, be the change you want to see in the world. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you know, when they looked at geographically where this is happening the most, it's in my area. It's mm -hmm. in the Southeast, the Southeast regions led the pack, uh, you know, a big proportion of these EMTALA violations for refusal to accept occurred in the Southeast, so. And it's so sad for us psychiatric patients yes. that end up boarding the ER for days on end without a final destination. Um, it's the state of healthcare in America. But we're gonna do better. We, we know the problem exists, that's the first step. Uh, and, you know, when they looked at repeat offenders too, there's a lot of repeat offenders. And so maybe the government does need to raise the penalty here uh, because perhaps these hospitals have learned it's cheaper for me to pay the EMTALA fine than it is to care for these uninsured patients. Um, but we can start thinking about those things and researching those things now, now that these authors have put this data out there for us. I'm glad it's out there and a broad light to this issue for us. Absolutely. The next plenary talk was Emergency Medicine Workforce Attrition Differences by Age and Gender, and the presenting author was Cameron Gattel. The next plenary looked at our leaky pipeline in medical training as it affects female physicians, and they looked at the rate of attrition from our specialty of female physicians. I was so surprised by this, Steve. So it sounds like 39% of residents nowadays want to go into emergency medicine, 29% of them become attendings, but then only 11% of them become uh, chairs. Women's roles in leadership in emergency medicine are very far and few in between. So where's the leak? I don't know, Steve. Well, this paper did a good job just demonstrating it, showing it, putting the numbers out there, um, showing that there's definitely a leaky pipeline and we want to have a diverse team. We want to have diverse leadership. Uh, and in order to do that, we're going to have to retain our female physicians. I wonder why female physicians are leaving, but also one thing the paper didn't look at is where are we going, right? Are sure. we retiring? Are we changing and going to a cash-based sort of uh, clinic or a place that is not an emergency department? Are we going into teaching? That would be interesting to know as well. 
according to their data, also men are also going into attrition earlier for the, in, the, in the last, I think they look at data in 2013 and then mm -hmm. again in 2016, mm -hmm. as well as women. And now women are leaving the workforce at about age 43, which is very young. young. Yeah, yeah, that's very young. I'm almost there <laughs> and I'm just starting. But you're, you're in it for the long haul. <laughs> I know you, you're in it for the long haul. So. I hope so, I hope so. But why, again, it comes to it. Just being a woman in medicine, I am sure that all of the residents and female faculty out there can, um, can sympathize with the fact that a lot of times you are not respected as well as your male colleagues. You're not taken seriously. You are in a way maybe pushed away from your career that you worked so hard to attain due to this micro and macro aggressions that women have to suffer to step into their role. I hope that we can get more data on what's going on with women in the workforce so that we can find a way of fixing this to bring these bright minds and this um, diverse sort of cohort to contribute to patient's care. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. They didn't look at the why, why females are leaving, but they clearly demonstrated female physicians are leaving our specialty much sooner than male physicians. Uh, and so we all need to look at the why and make sure that we're being supportive of all of our colleagues, especially our female colleagues. We need to make sure that we're equally promoting, providing equal opportunities for advancement because you do get frustrated. All of us would get frustrated if we worked hard and we weren't being promoted. We didn't have that advancement. Um, and I think it would push all of us to uh, retire early, if you will. Again, another great plenary um, talk that I'm glad that someone is bringing light to this. For sure, for sure. And then on our plenary four. This talk was titled Derivation of a Clinical Decision Rule to Guide Neuroimaging in Older Adults Who Have Fallen. The presenting author was Dr. Kirsten DeWitt. They were talking about our, our no, their new um, guidelines for neuroimaging in older patients. Yes. How frequently do we need to be getting the CT scan, Steve? I know that I get a CT scan on every person who falls yes. at any distance. Same, I, I, love, I love Canadian authors uh, because all the stuff that we think we have to do in the States, they publish all this data to show us that, no, we actually don't have to CT every old person that falls. Um, you know, this was a, a derivation trial for a decision rule about who to CT and who to not. It was prospectively collected um, it was a pretty impressive, pretty impressive uh, undertaking. They looked at a lot of Canadian hospitals and a few U.S. hospitals as well. They had a survey or they had a, a form for the emergency medicine physician to fill out prior to the CT being completed. Mm -hmm. So we didn't know what the CT was going to show. They asked questions about their age, their sex, did they hit their head, did they have loss of consciousness, um, what were their platelets, what was the hemoglobin, are they on anticoagulation? Uh, they have this full list of different predictors. And then afterwards, they managed the patient and they found out who had head bleeds and who didn't. And then they took this list of, of data points that mm -hmm. they had and they started plugging them in and they said, how few of these can we utilize and get to a sensitivity of 98% for detecting a clinically significant intracranial hemorrhage on CT? So when I heard that word clinically significant, I was like, oh, they're just looking at like rush to the OR or you know, emergent yeah. reversal anticoagulation. What does that mean? So they had a really low threshold. So hmm. if any anticoagulation was held 
that was clinically significant. So if you were on a daily aspirin, they said, don't take your aspirin tomorrow, that counted. If you were admitted to the hospital, mm-hmm. that counted as clinically significant. Even if they just watched you overnight and discharged you the next morning after another scan, that counted. So pretty much, I, I, I struggle to see any head bleed that would not have been considered clinically significant based off of uh, their their rules that they sent out for it. So pretty mm-hmm. low threshold to count these head bleeds. Yeah, because you would admit someone that you see a head bleed in, right? At least for Definitely. overnight in, observation. In the U.S., in the U.S., 100%. Yes. Uh, these these are going to get admitted, going to get a rescan, make sure it's stable at a minimum, mm-hmm. at a minimum, and most of these Agreed. are probably going to go to the ICU. Um, and so again, they're trying to reduce our CT utilization, trying to find a good decision rule. The four things they came up with that would get sensitivity to ninety eight percent was one, if the patient did not hit their head, mm-hmm. and it makes sense. Two, if the patient remembered the fall. If they remember the entirety of the fall, that means they probably didn't pass out. It means they would probably be able to tell you if they hit their head. Yeah. If there was no new neuro deficit, no new neuro abnormality, mm-hmm. which makes sense, we're all going to scan that patient. And then finally, the, the fourth one is if this patient was not frail or only had very mild frailty. And they were using this clinical frailty score. Have you ever used the clinically clinical frailty score? I feel score? like I have when I was in the trauma ICU. They use that every day on our notes. I've never used it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if I have, I forgot it. But it's very simple because to meet this criteria, pretty much if the patient, the patient had to be independent in all aspects of their life. Uh-huh. If they could pay their own bills, if they could feed themselves, cook their own food, manage their own affairs, that met the check mark. So mm-hmm. somebody that is living independently, taking care of themselves, they didn't hit their head, remember the fall, no neuro, no new neural abnormality. That was 98.6% sensitive for- That's similar to the other Canadian CT rules, you, right? It's, it's pretty impressive, pretty impressive, and it's easy. It's mm-hmm. just four things. And then, you know, we think there's such a low prevalence of all these CTs we do, the negative predictive value was 99.8% by using those four. That's amazing. It really is, but they understand ER doctors because they said, let's <laughs> simplify it even more. And so they looked at what would happen if they cut it down to two things. And the first one was if they didn't hit their head uh-huh. and they had no new neurodeficits. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty easy. If And again, this paper is looking at ground level falls, people mm-hmm. that are fall from standing, falling from a chair, falling from a bed. These are not people falling from down a flight of stairs. But when you look at just, they didn't hit their head, no neuro, no new neuro deficit. That was ninety five percent sensitive, uh, and the negative predicted value on that was still ninety nine point six percent, which is pretty good. And that's still great and very valid on now for nursing home patients. Those are yes. already demented and can't tell us very much, yes. right? They have no evidence of trauma. They didn't hit their head. Yes. No, they have no neuro deficits. Even if they don't remember, we don't know. Do they not remember because they're demented or because they lost consciousness? But those two, um, two findings, they are pretty much objective. Yeah, and you know we do have to remember this is a prospective derivation trial. Mm-hmm. So this is not a validation trial. This is deriving the rule, making the rule. We still need a prospective validation trial. Um, but these numbers are are pretty impressive. Uh, I think this will cut back on my CT utilization, just seeing this, uh, seeing these numbers. It will. You know, one of the questions, they got a really good question of why, um, why does this matter? We think of a non-con CT of the head as a low risk intervention. It's not like we're dumping a ton of contrast into them. 
Uh, it's not a ton of radiation. Most of these patients with their advanced age, mm-hmm. very minimal risk of causing cancer down the road. Why does it matter? Why not just scan everybody? And the author, uh, it's pretty interesting when you compare different health systems in different countries, she was stating that in Canada, only 9% of their rural emergency departments have access to CT 24, 24 hours a day. 9%. 9%. 0-9. Not 90. 9. Which means to CT this patient's head, we're talking about transferring through, you know, through Canada uh, to a larger facility to get the CT of the head, which leads to economic uh, constraints to the patient because then the patient has to get home. Um, it leads to a bunch of resource utilization. Mm-hmm. It leads to risks associated with transfer. Um, and furthermore, it takes time to get a CT. Yeah, that's a big deal. When your ED is busy, I know I worked I worked at SUMA. The waiting room stacked up there like it does everywhere. Mm-hmm. My new shop, the waiting room stacks up at times. Uh, everywhere I've worked, we have times when the waiting room stacks up. If I can clear a patient without a CT scan, that's going to allow me to get that patient home and get another patient in from the lobby into that room. Absolutely. I think a lot of times when we are overdoing and doing more things for patients for litigious issues, we don't keep in mind what will that do to our other patients that are in the waiting room that maybe have a a much bigger need for a CAT scan, for that IV, for that medicine, for that blood work, right? But now they're waiting behind because someone else that mm, borderline maybe doesn't need it, it's taking up that spot. It's more of a systematic uh, issue sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, I look forward to their uh, validation of this decision rule, and hopefully we can spare some old people some radiation. That's great. A lot of great new exciting things people are doing here at SAEM. I'm excited for a couple more days of learning what people are working on across the country. I tell you, it was a great day. I'm excited for tomorrow as well. And Amanda, thank you for uh, thank you, thank you for taking the time to, to chat with us about it. Thank you so much, Steve. It was great hanging out.